Let's open the scriptures to the letter of Paul to the Romans. Romans chapter 10, page 1203 in the Pew Bible. This reading is taken in connection with what we confess in the Belgic Confession, Article 22, concerning how we are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, how we are justified through faith in Him. So Paul writes about that actually all throughout the letter to the Romans and also here in chapter 10. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, and that's the Jews, his fellow brothers, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the Scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved." How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed, they have. For their voice has gone out to all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. But of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. I invite you to turn with me in the book of praise to page 507, where we have the teaching of Scripture summarized by the church in the Belgic Confession. That's our confession then. <clears throat> what we believe Scripture teaches, and we're focusing on Article 22. We believe that in order that we may obtain the true knowledge of this great mystery, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith, 
This faith embraces Jesus Christ with all his merits, makes him our own, and does not seek anything besides him. For it must necessarily follow either that all we need for our salvation is not in Jesus Christ, or if it is all in him, that one who has Jesus Christ through faith has complete salvation. It is therefore a terrible blasphemy to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something else is needed besides Him. For the conclusion would then be that Christ is only half a Savior. Therefore, we rightly say with Paul that we are justified by faith apart from works of the law. Meanwhile, strictly speaking, we do not mean that faith as such justifies us. For faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ our righteousness. He imputes to us all His merits and as many holy works as He has done for us and in our place. Therefore, Jesus Christ is our righteousness, and faith is the instrument that keeps us with Him in the communion of all His benefits. When those benefits have become ours, they are more than sufficient to acquit us of our sins. So far, our confession. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, I mentioned recently that these articles in the Belgic 20 through 24 bring us really to the heart and the core of the gospel, the Bible's message. And the, the basic message is that our salvation is God's work. It's His work of grace alone through Jesus Christ alone. Article 20, we've seen that. It described the work of God the Father in initiating our salvation, starting it. Article 21 describes the work of God the Son in coming to earth and purchasing our salvation. And now in Article 22, we have the work of God the Spirit in bringing this salvation home to you and me. He does that by creating in us true faith. For that was the great dispute in the Reformation and still is today, particularly with respect to the Roman Catholic Church, just how is a person granted entry into heaven? How is a person saved? A person must have faith, everyone agrees, but is that all? What must a person do to be saved? And even amongst ourselves and in Reformed churches, it's not always so clear to us personally. Do we not wonder at times if our faith is good enough to be saved, strong enough to be acceptable to God? We don't want to say that we are saved by our good works, but when our faith is weak and when our life of good works is weak or worse, it's not easy for us to begin to question. It's, it's not difficult to become filled with doubts. Am, am I really saved? I mean, right? I, I'm just not a strong Christian. Not sometimes. So those kinds of questions lead us also with Article 22 to ask, what does the Bible say about faith and our salvation? How do we put this together biblically? 
And so I bring you this word of God. God justifies His people by true faith alone. By true faith alone. We'll take a look at the origin of true faith. Where does it come from? The object of true faith and then the instrument of true faith. Well, one of the deeper questions, basic questions in this debate is how does a person actually come to faith? Who is responsible for a person's act of trust in Christ? Is it the individual, him or her? Is it God? Is it a cooperation between a person and God? Well, the Roman Catholic Church taught then and still teaches today that it is a cooperation. God does His part, man has to do his part. They believe that humans are born basically good. There's always some good in everyone. They admit that mankind has been weakened by the fall into sin, but there still remains in man some natural gifts or the natural gifts which God gave to him at creation, and one of those includes a free will. Man still has a free will, they teach. The effect of the fall, they say, is that all the supernatural gifts have been taken away from man. Man cannot rightly know God. Man cannot attain salvation. What man needs then is to be, to be picked up or raised up so that he can reach again for the supernatural gifts. And Rome says that God provides the grace to do this in the sacraments. That's where Rome goes to see the answer, in the sacraments, particularly the sacrament of baptism. The holy water of baptism, they believe, has power within it, and as it's applied to the child or to an adult, we had two here this morning, they would say that it applies God's grace directly through the water to the soul of the individual. So then a baptized person now is, is given a certain ability, ability to believe in God, ability to come to know God, and that person is then uh, responsible to use his or her free will to do so. So God in baptism provides the assist, but faith in the end is the free choice of the individual. Well, that was the Roman Catholic teaching. Fifty years after the Belgic Confession was written, along came a group called the Arminians. They arose from within the Reformed churches in the Netherlands. And they would teach something very similar. The man is born uh, hampered by sin, weakened by sin, but his, his will to choose was still intact. All that humans need is for the Holy Spirit to gently suggest to you and me that faith in Christ is the way to go. He does that by the preaching, holding out to uh, individuals in the preaching the treasures of God in Christ, in, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and with just a little persuasion, say the Arminians, a gentle massaging of a person's conscience, that would lead him to choose for faith in Jesus. Just as for the Roman church, so also with the Arminians, faith in the end is a, an exercise of one's free will for or against. Well, what's the problem with these views? The problem, brothers and sisters, is that the Bible just never speaks this way. The Bible doesn't teach these things. The Bible doesn't distinguish between natural and supernatural gifts, but the Bible 
distinguishes between creating man good, which God did in the beginning, and man throwing himself into corruption, which he did shortly after the beginning, Genesis 3. God created man in His image, perfectly able to know Him and serve Him in the way that He desired, but man, we humans, we rebelled and we plunged ourselves into sin. So, mankind didn't simply lose a few supernatural gifts, but everything that man was created to be became ruined. That's how bad it is or, or and was and is. We became ruined through and through. The image of God was still imprinted on man, but it was, it was a lifeless thing now. It was a mere shell of its former self, totally unable to function as it was meant to. And the Bible doesn't describe man as being born weak and just needs a little assist. No, it describes you and I born in sin and born dead in sin, Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sin, Paul writes. And dead people, they don't have any ability to do anything, do they? How many of you have stood beside a coffin, seen that lifeless corpse in the coffin, and you know there's, there's just there's nothing, there's no power, there's no life in that corpse? That's you and I spiritually. We are lifeless corpses that cannot reach out to God. That's why Article 22 begins with a very clear scriptural confession. We believe that in order that we may obtain the true knowledge of this great mystery, here it comes, the Holy Spirit kindles in our hearts a true faith. The Holy Spirit does that. To kindle. To kindle means to light a fire. I think everyone here knows about lighting fires. You probably did that many times this summer, a campfire. You get the wood together, you hopefully dry wood, some, some kindling. You make a nice pile, maybe the, the log house or the teepee, whatever you prefer. You get it ready. But if you don't put a match to that pile of wood, it won't burn, will it? It's not going to catch fire on its own. It's just a pile of dead wood. You can't get on to roasting marshmallows and making s'mores until somebody lights that fire, and so it is with our hearts. We cannot kindle our own fire of faith. The Spirit comes along and He lights us up, so to speak. Apart from His work, we remain dead piles of wood. And how does the Spirit do this then? Well, we read about it in Romans 10. Maybe you'd like to turn there with me for a moment. Romans 10, starting at verse 14. God has given a basic method to work this faith in His people. Verse 14, how then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And then skip down to verse 17, it comes to the conclusion. Consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the Word of Christ. That's the basic method God gives. When we put it all together, we get this. God appoints 
men to, to go out as heralds of the gospel, to, to preach the word of Christ. And as the preachers go forth into the world and into congregations and into the mission field, the Holy Spirit goes along with. And as the preaching goes forth, the Holy Spirit goes forth and He goes into the hearts, specifically into the hearts of those whom God chose. Remember, we've talked about that before. God chose from before the creation of the world, Ephesians 1. He finds those people. He knows who they are. And as those people hear the word, the Spirit goes into those hearts and He starts to kindle faith in them. Everybody listening starts out dead in sin, in rebellion. No one is more worthy than another. But God, out of His own good pleasure, has chosen some to respond, some to be saved. And in those dead hearts, that's where the Spirit goes to work, kindling faith through the preaching. Others are not chosen. They remain right where by nature we all would remain. And in fact, we would all want to remain if the Holy Spirit hadn't touched us. They remain in rebellion against their Maker. In other words, brothers and sisters, your act of belief, my act of putting trust, your act of placing trust in Christ, your profession of faith, it is not an independent decision. It's not your initiative or mine. It's God's. It's His initiative. It's His work in us. Listen to this testimony from Acts 13. When the Gentiles heard this, that was the preaching, which was going out to them, and Paul had said, this is for the Gentiles too. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And here's the key part. And all who were appointed for eternal life believed. That's verse 48, Acts 13. Upon hearing the preaching, the appointed ones, those appointed from eternity, they came to faith. The Holy Spirit lit them up. It was the same with Lydia, Acts 16. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. The Lord opened her heart to respond to the preaching. It's like he opened your heart, like he opened my heart. And he did it through the simple, faithful preaching of the Word. That's why we call preaching a means of grace. We describe it as the ordinary tool God uses to work faith in His chosen people. That follows, too, from Christ's command in Mark 16, go into all the world to proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is the regular method God uses to bring people to faith. Now, does that mean that there is no other way that God works faith in people? What about sharing the news like some of us were doing at the fair the last few days, sharing the news of Jesus Christ with passers-by? What about a conversation with a neighbor? Happened at the park this summer. A number of us were involved with that. You've got neighbors down the street, maybe, you're talking to. What about believing parents instructing our children in the way of the Lord? Does the Lord not use that instruction to, to work and nurture faith in His people? What about at the Christian schools? 
or in catechism class? What about Bible study groups and personal reading and meditation? Does not God use these things to, to work and strengthen faith in the hearts of His elect? Well, yes, He does. We have some examples of that in the Bible. Priscilla and Aquila, they, they pulled Apollos to the side. To, uh, Luke tells us in Acts 18, and they, they taught him the way of the Christian way more accurately, it says. And he grew in his faith. Upon hearing Jesus for the first time, you remember in John chapter 1, Andrew ran and told his brother Simon, I have found the Messiah, and he brought him to Christ. And Philip did the same to his friend Nathaniel. And people everywhere through the Gospels, they, they hear the preaching and they tell others, and, and those others, they come running to Jesus. They flock to Jesus to hear the preaching for themselves. But now notice all these ways, all these different things that I've just mentioned, they all center around the basic communication of the Word, the Word, this Gospel Word. They all flow out of the preaching of that Word, right? In each case, whether it's a conversation or a parent or a teacher or a neighbor telling you or you telling the neighbor, they all flow out of an explanation of God's Word. And wherever God's Word is faithfully explained or shared or read or taught or meditated upon, the Spirit of Christ certainly goes to work, drawing to Himself the elect. So there's no competition between the preaching as the ordinary means of grace and these other things which are supplemental means of grace. The preaching is simply God's officially appointed means given to the church. It's commanded of the church. It's the permanent, regular instrument of grace that has been in continuous use since the day of Pentecost. Ministers are commanded to preach it. If I wasn't preaching it to you, I'd be a, in dereliction of duty. You should fire me or do whatever they do to get, get, uh, get that problem solved. But you know what I mean. And all members of the church have the duty to listen and submit to the preaching. So by all means, brothers and sisters, supplement the preaching by Bible study and instruction and personal conversation and meditation. But let us never diminish or neglect the number one tool, the primary tool that comes to us as a command of God. Preach the Word in season and out of season. Listen to the Word in season and out of season. These things work together. And then let's also have trust in God's promise to work faith by way of the preaching and not hesitate to invite our neighbors to come and hear and if God wills to work in their hearts to then be connected to Christ in faith. For the church preaches always one basic message. There's, always, there's, there's more details to be sure, but we come back to and we are centered on preaching Christ as Lord and Savior. He is the object of true faith. Paul says it this way in Romans 10 verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. 
Article 22 summarizes that quite, quite neatly in the second sentence. This faith, it embraces Jesus Christ with all of His merits and makes Him our own and does not seek anything besides Him. Jesus Christ is the center. It's, he's the object. He's the one we believe in as Savior. So that means, brothers and sisters, a number of things. First, Christianity is really an exclusive religion. It, it excludes other possible ways of being saved. It's very politically incorrect to say that in Canada, but it is God's very correct, the only correct way of it being said. Only faith in Jesus Christ alone, Son of God, Son of Man, the one who died on the cross and was raised to life for our sins, only faith in Him will save a person from being condemned eternally in hell. True faith cannot embrace Allah, God of Islam. True faith cannot embrace Krishna or Vishnu, gods of Hinduism, or the great spirit of the indigenous peoples of our country, or even the God worshipped by the Jews. Many think that all worship the same God under a different name, so it doesn't really matter which religion you go with as long as you do something, but the Bible says there is only one name under heaven by which we may be saved. That is the name Jesus Christ. Where that name is missing or that name is mis maligned in some way, so like the, 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 the Muslims believe that Jesus is a prophet, but they don't accept Him as Son of God. They don't look to Him as the Savior of the world. Where his name is missing or maligned, you only have a false religion that's invented by men, and we must not be taken in. It, it's, the, it's the pressure of our society to believe that, yeah, everybody's got, a, everybody's got a way to heaven, but the only way there is Christ. Maybe closer to home, we know people, I think, who have left the church, but and they walk their own way, but they still say, if we get into a conversation with them, well, I believe in God. I still have faith, you know. Well, in light of Romans 10, we should ask them, do you believe that Jesus is Lord? Do you confess Jesus as your Savior from your sin? Because to say that you believe in God is really meaningless. As James points out in his letter, the demons believe that God exists, but that is not true faith. The question is, is Jesus Christ your Savior? And is He your Lord? Because if you confess Him as Lord, that's Romans 10, particularly if you confess Him as Lord, you are saying, I am servant to Jesus. And if I'm servant to Jesus, I need to be living in obedience to my master because he's my Lord. So if you say that you believe in Jesus as Lord, where is your obedience? You can't say you have faith without obedience. That's just hypocrisy and unbelief. True faith embraces Jesus Christ and nothing else. 
Scripture says simply in Romans 10, verse 11, anyone who trusts in Christ will never be put to shame. This is, is, is the pure gospel. All who truly believe in the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins, they have those sins forgiven, and they enter at that moment into eternal life. That's the heart of it. And of course, the ministry of the church is important for Christians, for the nurturing of their faith, and it's commanded of Christ. And of course, being a living member of the church is Christ's will for His people, and true believers will give themselves to these things and, and want to, to follow the commands of their Lord and Master Jesus Christ. But we need to understand those things are not on the same level as the Savior Himself. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He's the only one in whom we place our trust. We do not place our trust in the church. We love the church. We are the church. We serve to build up the church. We're happy to do that, but, but we don't trust the church. We trust Jesus. We don't put our trust in the sacraments. We love the sacraments. They're gifts of Christ. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper next Sunday. We've celebrated baptism this morning. We want to embrace these things and use them for the building up of faith, but we don't put our trust in them. We don't put our trust in ministers or elders or anything else, only Jesus. As the Belgic says, it is therefore a terrible blasphemy to assert that Christ is not sufficient, but that something else is needed besides Him, for the conclusion would then be that Christ is only half a Savior. You can't have half a Savior, beloved. It's really all or nothing, and we have it all in Christ. True faith knows that, and, and trust that. We saw that so clearly that, that Christ is a complete Savior last time in Hebrews 7, Article 21. Remember, Jesus is the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He and He alone is eternal. He's without sin. He sacrificed not animals, but His very own life as a substitute for ours. He's risen from the dead. He's ascended into heaven in His glorified body. And there in, in heaven, He presents His spotless sacrifice before His Father all day and night continually, and the judge, the Father, He accepts His perfect work on our behalf. Because our high priest once lived here as one of us and now lives there as one of us, He's still fully human, and He's done so for our sake, you and I, brothers and sisters, we have a place to go to. We have a, a, a spot reserved for us in heaven. Already now, we may go to the throne of grace in prayer and receive grace and mercy and whatever else is needed from our Father. What more could we possibly need? What could we add to the work of the great high priest that would help us to become justified before God? No, no, nothing. True faith, it just wraps its arms around the Lord Jesus Christ, wraps its arms around the, the great high priest and says, Jesus Christ, He is mine, and I am His. And I seek nothing else besides Him. I'm not looking for anybody or anything. I just hang on to Jesus. That's something we'll declare 
next Sunday and have impressed upon us as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. You eat the bread, you drink the wine, and those symbols, they point to Christ, Christ alone. Well, when we have all of that clear in our minds, then we can see that true faith is nothing more than an instrument in God's hand to save His people. I think this is where we sometimes get confused and struggle. Sometimes we feel like a failure when it comes to our faith, like our faith is not good enough, that our Christian thankful living is not quite good enough. It falls short. And you can be a very sincere believer and have this kind of feeling. You can be a, a living member of the church, doing everything you can to live a Christian life. You, you, you might be a faithful husband or wife. You work in your daily calling faithfully every day. You raise your children with care, teaching them, training them, modeling for them the way of Christ. You are regular in prayer. You are devoted in Bible study. When volunteers are needed at church or school, you, you put your hand up. All excellent things, beautiful things. But one day, when you're busy with it all, you can start to get to thinking about the quality of your labors and the quality of your faith and realize there's been some shortfalls, maybe outright failures. I, I couldn't get to all my tasks. I left a, a lot of things undone. And the, some of the things I did were rather poorly done. You can have this feeling that I, sh I should be doing more. I'm always thinking I should do more. I'm not sincere enough, maybe. My sins and the sh and shortcomings, they, they seem bigger to me today than they were yesterday, and I, I'm frustrated that I don't make more progress in faith. I know I should be doing more. I know I should be doing better. But there's this weight bearing down on me, kind of sapping me of my energy. I'm not sure if I'm right with God. When I look at my faith, I see that it's weak. When I look at my, my walk with the Lord, I see that it's weak. I just feel like it's not very likely that God's happy with me. All those feelings, brothers and sisters, can be very real, very powerful, and very sincere in us. But then, brothers and sisters, we need to understand we are sincerely misled by those feelings. You have to take your feelings and hold them up and examine them in the light of the gospel, in the light of the word. Feelings are not automatically truth because those feelings I described are actually false guilt creeping in through a misunderstanding of grace. The gospel of grace, Scripture says this, that I, you, have full salvation in Jesus Christ alone. Full stop. I do not have salvation in my faith. I do not have salvation in my service. The gospel proclaims that Jesus served an entire life of obedience 
on my behalf, and that obedience is credited to my account. Therefore, my good works never need to count to my acceptance. They never were part of the equation. The gospel says my salvation, your salvation, it rests entirely, exclusively on the quality of Jesus' atoning work and not on the quality of my faith or yours. It is not faith which saves us. It's Jesus who saves us. Faith is nothing more than a connector. A connector that joins us to Christ. We need this connector because we have to be united with Christ in order to receive His benefits. But the Savior is Christ and Him alone. Answer 22, or Article 22, puts it this way. Meanwhile, strictly speaking, we do not mean that faith as such justifies us. For faith is only the instrument by which we embrace Christ, our righteousness. That's a good way of looking at it. Faith, the act of trusting in Christ, is just a tool, an instrument in God's hands to cause us to receive the blessings of Christ's labors. Let me try an example. Imagine a person uh, with a, in need of a blood transfusion, a very urgent need. If he doesn't get this blood, he will soon die. So doctors insert a needle into his arm along with a long tube. They call that an intravenous line. We refer that to that as an IV. So you've got the needle and the IV, right, going up to a bag of blood and probably more bags to follow. Without that line, that IV line, the new blood could not enter into the bloodstream and the person would die. Well, true faith is like that intravenous line. The intravenous line is not doing the saving work. The blood is. Faith is not doing the saving work. Jesus is. But faith, like the IV, is necessary to connect the dying patient to the life-giving blood. The blood of the Lord Jesus does all the saving work, but it is administered to us, it is provided to us, it is given to us through the instrument of faith. And then you see it, it doesn't really matter the quality of the instrument, does it? Whether the instrument is weak or strong, that doesn't matter. You could have an intravenous line made of hard plastic or soft plastic. Maybe they'll make it of steel or nickel or copper. The one material might be stronger than the other, but it's never the quality of the intravenous line that matters so long as the blood gets through. Nobody pays attention to the, the strength of the intravenous line so long as the blood gets through. That's all that matters. And that's exactly how it is with faith. Weak or strong, thick or thin, so long as your faith embraces the Lord Jesus Christ, so long as it connects us with the Savior, then His blood will flow to us, and along with it all those benefits, forgiveness, peace, righteousness, holiness, the satisfaction that He provides 
and everlasting life. It is God, God the Father, who justifies us. He saves us in His Son, Jesus Christ, alone, without cost to you or me. And then God the Spirit gives it to us through the instrument of faith alone. Everything hinges on Christ. We have everything in Christ. Eternal security, safety, satisfaction for our hearts. What more could we possibly want or need? Amen. Amen.